0: As I was studying this week for First Timothy chapter 2, I came to the end of First Timothy chapter 2. And I don't know if you've ever done this, where you're like, uh, you're doing something and you, you don't realize that the end's coming. And, and then the end is like, oh man, that's really a, a difficult thing. First um, Timothy chapter 2, the end of First Timothy chapter 2, is one of the most difficult portions of Scripture to teach with women in the room. When it's all men, it's really easy because we all just laugh about it. But it's really difficult because there are things said in First Timothy chapter 2 that are really hard for women to stomach. But I think that's because very often we take verses and we put them by themselves. Okay, We shelf verses. We don't, we don't look at the context behind why Paul said what he said, why the Holy Spirit said through Paul what the Holy Spirit had to say to the church. And um, I think before we even get into chapter 2, we need to get into the context of chapter 2. It's super important. And, I, and I'll tell you, when you read verse 1, it says, therefore. And anytime you're doing inductive Bible study, anytime you're trying to pull out the, the full understanding of Scripture, and you do inductive Bible study, whenever you see the word, therefore, you have to understand why therefore is therefore, right? You've got to understand why it's there. What's the purpose of it? Because whatever said in the upcoming verses pertains to the verses before it. So it says, therefore, in 2.1, because Paul is charging Timothy to wage the good warfare. To wage the good warfare. And you might be thinking, well, what exactly does that mean in Christianity? We talked about it a little bit last week. Waging the good warfare. Wait, are we allowed to talk about that in church? Yeah. It's, it's specifically talking about waging the good warfare for Jesus Christ. Bringing people to salvation is what it's talking about. The purpose of our lives here on earth is to show people Jesus Christ through our behavior. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to, dis- to discuss what should our behavior look like as Christians as people within the church and outside of the church. So, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we'll read all the way down to verse 15, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Therefore, I exhort first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner, also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness and good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and i do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man but to be in silence for adam was formed first then eve and adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression nevertheless she will be saved in the bearing uh, in childbearing if they continue in faith love holiness with self control so you can see there's some difficult portions of this Uh, passage if you were to just take the verses by themselves if you're not reading them contextually so therefore i exhort first the first thing he says look i've committed to you timothy son to go and to wage the good warfare and i exhort first the first thing in order not in in uh, uh, relative uh, importance, but the first thing in order, the thing that needs to happen first is prayer. And he explains prayer in four ways, okay? He says, I therefore exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So, supplications. It's simply to entreat for. It, the idea is to ask for something it's this is actually the type of prayer that is most common in the world today and we're 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 constantly throwing up these small little prayers for stuff whether it be our needs or our wants we're supplicating we're asking for things sometimes that may be asking for things for other people and again we don't want this to to be a negative thing we We're putting out supplications for Will this morning when we prayed for Will's legs to to not be swollen, that they they would enjoy their time in Israel. That's not a negative thing. That's a positive thing. But the first thing he says, that supplications would be given to entreat for. The next is the word prayers. And the word prayer there is a word that literally means worship. To, To spend time hanging out with Jesus Christ, worshiping Him. And the question is, is when I am truly in prayer, when I'm spending time with Jesus, what does it look like? Am I truly hanging out with Jesus, worshiping Him? Spending time asking Him questions, wanting to know more about Him, how He feels about things. Speaking to Him and expecting an answer back. Well, that's different, huh? So often I hear that people pray and they say stuff like, "Well, I pray to God and I never hear back from Him." The truth is, very often we don't spend enough enough time quietly listening to Him, waiting for His response. And very often, as we study the Scripture, we pray before we study. We ask Him certain things about Himself and His attributes, and then we get into the Word, and He tells us exactly the thing that we've asked. But very often, we're not doing that. We're not digging in. So it says here that we should be giving supplications, which is asking for things, prayers, which is worship of God. Then The next word there is intercession, a falling in with. The idea is that we're praying for the needs of others. We're, We're concentrated on others and not ourselves. And I can tell you that this is very often something that's thrown to the wayside. In fact, I've heard people come to me and say, hey, I have a strict gift of intercessory prayer, which is good. That's a blessing to hear. But that implies that all the rest of us don't have the gift of praying for one another. The truth is, is every single person in this room should be praying for one another. Believers and non-believers alike. We should have others on our minds in regard to our conversation with Christ all of the time. The next word there is the giving of thanks. And again, this word simply means thankfulness. And so often our prayer life between us, our, our conversations between us and Jesus Christ are consumed with, Lord, I need, Lord, I want. Lord, please give me, please bring me, please fulfill. When the reality is, is we should realize how much he's done already, and we should be thankful. How often do we just sit down and spend time with Jesus thanking him for what he's done in our lives? Thanking him for the the time he's given us. I mean, the reality, guys, is, is we have the capability of approaching the God who's created all things. Who who gives me the the air, the breath in my lungs. I'm able to approach Him and speak to Him. Thanksgiving should be coming out of every word. Every word that's coming out of my mouth should be in thankfulness. You know, it's funny. uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon, most of you know who that is. He quoted uh, his quote about prayer is uh, it, it touched me actually it says if sinners be damned let them leap to hell over our bodies if they will perish let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for you know how often are we praying for salvation for those who do know, who do not know christ How often are we praying for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with their relationship with Christ? Those of us who are in need, who who are feeling the burdens and pains of life, and that's that's building up on our shoulders so that we're actually dividing ourselves from Jesus. How often are we praying for those people? Because in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, the first thing that I want you to do is pray. the the most important thing to do is pray. We think about evangelism and how important it is to go out and spread the truth. And it is super important to go out and give people the truth of God's Word. How much time do we pray before we go and talk to people about Jesus? How much time do we of our time, how much of our lives are we giving to the Lord in order to influence those who we're reaching out to? The truth of the matter is, is I could go and I could tell someone the truths of God's Word, the truths of creation, the truths of uh, a logic that lead to Jesus Christ. But if the Holy Spirit hasn't come and touched their heart, someone who's a lot smarter than me, which there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me, can convince them that I'm wrong. If I simply change the mind of someone, someone that's smarter than me could change their mind again. What I need to see is the change of heart, which only comes through prayer. This is what Charles Spurgeon was saying. They need to be prayed for. So he says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And the word for men there is not just man, it's anthropos. It means all mankind, men and women. We need to be praying for all men and women. And I can tell you that that very often is a struggle because when I pray, the people who I love most are usually the people who pop into my mind and I pray for. I close my eyes and I, I think of the men and women that are closest to me in life, and that's, those are the, the names that I bring up in prayer. What Paul's saying is, hey, you need to be bringing up all of these different people, all of these different circumstances that you come into uh, come into contact with, even those who are hard for all men and then he changes directions a little bit from all men and then he says verse two for kings and all who are in authority that we should be praying lifting up kings and those who are in authority and this is a i've seen an array of ideology throughout the church of what we do with with our authorities with our governmental authorities how we feel towards them what how, how should we be acting towards them? Should we be praying for them or not praying for them? Should we be praying against them? I remember when Obama took office and I heard the church, oh, I'm, I'm not praying for him. I'm, I'm praying against him. I want him out of office. The truth is, we need to be praying for the authorities and kings that are put into office. And some may argue, yeah, but we live in a system in America that's different. We get to to elect our representatives. It says nothing about that in Scripture. What Scripture simply says is, all who are put in authority, we pray for. Kings and all authorities. Scripture also tells us that all authority was put there by God. We're going to read that in a second. But the reason why we are to pray for our authority, our governmental authorities, is, is written right here. You continue in verse 2. It says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Why do we pray for those who are in leadership over our government? So that we can live a, a quiet and peaceable life. What's the purpose? Why, why do we want to live a quiet and peaceable life? It's because if you remember, the context of all of these verses is to wage the good warfare. How can we wage the good warfare when we're constantly dealing with the pangs of not eating, of not being able to, to live, to not have a house over our heads? We want a, a quiet and peaceable life so that we could wage the good warfare. That's the context of all of this. Why should we be praying for our leaders? because we want to lead people to Jesus. We want our leaders to become Christians. We want our leaders to know Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want me To be unafraid of, I'm sorry, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to to do good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject to not only because of wrath but also for conscience' sake for because of this you may you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers according are attending continually to this very thing we need to be those who do not resist the authorities that God has put into our lives and you may think well what does paul know about this how could paul say that let me tell you how paul knows about this Paul's sitting in jail as he writes this. "This isn't coming from someone who's living a luxurious life outside of the rule and reign of authorities. He's sitting in jail writing, "Hey, all of you who, who believe that I'm God's apostle to the Gentiles, you need to be obeying your governing authority." It's pretty intense. I think it's pretty um, outright, pretty, you know, straight and narrow. Pretty easy to understand. Turn with me to First Peter, First Peter, Chapter Two, Verse Thirteen. 1 Peter 2.13 says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or the governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak or a vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of submitting to the authorities? This is a hard one because I, don't, I, I struggle with submitting to anyone. I mean, if I'm real, if I'm, if I'm telling the truth about my own heart, I struggle with submitting to any authority. Truth be told, Scripture is very clear. We need to submit to the governing authority. Why? So that we could quiet those who say that we're lawbreakers. So that we could give a good testimony of Jesus Christ to this world. So that we could lead people to salvation, to the kingdom. In the end, that's our purpose here on earth. Yeah, but, but they're saying to do stuff that's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And when when the government comes in and says, hey, late-term abortion is appropriate, then we we yell back, no, that's ungodly. That's false. There's no way I could get behind you on that. That doesn't mean we become unruly and fight against our government. We just tell them the truth of how God feels about murdering babies. When they come out and say, hey, We're legalizing marijuana because it's not so bad. We're able to say, no, you're wrong. That's going to harm our society. We should not be participating in that. At the same time, being obedient to our government. Daniel actually was the perfect picture of this. We see Daniel in, in friendship with the king. The, friend, the, the king called him his friend. The king put out a rule, a law, saying that you can worship no one but, but the king. You cannot pray to anyone but the king. Daniel went upstairs to his bedroom, opened his windows like he normally does. He didn't do it behind closed doors. And he worshipped God. He prayed to God. And in doing so, he was cast into the lion's den, but you see the difference with what Daniel did was he was friends of the friend of the king. When the king found out, he was upset. When the Lord closed the the mouths of the lion, the lions, and the king came the next day, he was able to pull Daniel out of the pit, rejoicing that his friend was okay. You see, our testimony needs to be one of of love of kindness of gentleness of friendship inviting people into the truth of god's word you see the king knew that the the god of daniel was the true and living god at that point because daniel wasn't breaking in any laws he wasn't fighting it when they came to arrest him and throw him in the lion's pit he didn't fight he didn't run That needs to be our testimony. It's a hard one. A lot of people don't like it. I understand why. So, again, it says that we need to be praying for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence why verse 3 for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our savior and why is it good in his sight because it causes people to seek him orderliness causes people to be to have a desire for what we have he does and what and, and again why is this good and acceptable continue with me verse 4 who desires God, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Salvation is the purpose behind all of this. Why is it good? It's good because it leads people to Christ. It leads people to Jesus. It leads people to a a desire for the knowledge of God. Salvation. And on top of that, a knowledge of the truth. Salvation and a knowledge of the truth. This is what comes about when we are orderly in all of our uh, life and everything that we do. Another thing, and this is a kind of an off note because this is a little out of context. But it says there that God desires all men to be saved. And there's a teaching within churches today that says that God has chosen specific people that are going to heaven and God has chosen specific people to go to hell. The problem with that idea, that ideology, is that that would make God a liar. Because throughout Scripture, God says that He has no joy in the death of the wicked. God says that He is not willing that any shall perish in 1 Peter. That all shall come to repentance. Here he says that he has a desire that all anthropos, all humankind, would be saved. That's his desire. Now my question is, do we have the same desire? Is our heart and our mind in line with Jesus Christ? Can we say, I have a desire for all men and women to be saved? And does that come to fruition in our lives? Not saying everyone's gonna get saved, but do we actually try for that? If we believe it, we're gonna, it's gonna take action. It's gonna, it's gonna spring root. Do we believe that God's heart is for everyone to be saved and enter the kingdom of God? It's funny. I watched this. Uh, goofy kids movie last night um can't remember what it's called but anyways oh Superbook. my children like this show called Superbook, right it's this way of you know bringing bible stories to life for children and uh what we watched last night was jonah and it it was just so applicable for this message jonah is running from god saying, I know you're gracious, I know you're loving, I know you're kind, I can't go to Nineveh because I know if I go there and give them your message, the city will repent. The heart of Jonah was in in contrast, in in, in a a fight with the will of God. How often is that our heart? And you, you may say, That's not my heart. I want to see everyone get saved. I want to see everyone come to repentance. What does it look like when we're having conversations with people? Do our conversations say, I I want you to come to heaven with me? I can tell you I've been in conversations with, with Christians and coming from my own mouth, I was doing nothing but spitting venom to them because I was telling them how wrong they are. No, but you don't understand. The truth is... My conversation said to them, I want to be right and I want you to be wrong. Not, hey, I want you to come to heaven with me. I want you to come experience Jesus with me. I want you to feel the love of Christ that I've felt. I want you to experience him say, hey, yeah, don't worry about where you are right now. I love you so much that I died for you. All those sins, all that burden that's on your shoulders came with me on the cross. I don't know about you guys. Well, that's not true. I know about you guys because you've experienced the same thing I have. When I met Jesus Christ, it wasn't me knowing everything in the Bible. It wasn't me having this superior knowledge of God's Word, and that's why I became a Christian. No, I, I went to church. I got lied to. I got tricked into going into church. And while in church, Jesus spoke to me and said, I saved you, and I forgive you of everything you've done. My grace has erased your sin. If you want, you could be a new creation today. And I wanted it. I desired it. I wanted to be a new creation. God met me where I was at. I said it last week. When I got saved, I didn't know if the Bible was truly the inspired Word of God. I didn't know if the apostles wrote it so it was the Word of men and not God. I didn't know if you know living in open uh, sin was acceptable. I didn't know any of that. That was the least of my worries when Jesus Christ came down and said, Hey, James, I love you. And I want you to come and follow me. 12, 13 years later, I now know that God's word is the inspired word of God. That we can't live in open, continual sin. I have a right view of, of what God's, God wants me to have. Maybe not complete, but it's it's changing, it's happening. As the Holy Spirit leads me, we need to have that heart that God did. That God does. That all shall be saved. That all will be led to repentance and to the knowledge of his truth. And I could tell you if we approach conversations with people with that heart, it changes the whole conversation. People usually won't be so combative when you're saying, yeah, no, I, I understand why you feel that way. I love you, man. I, I get it. That's how I felt. I, that's exactly what I said. I'm with you. I'm I'm tracking. I get it. When you're you're having that type of conversation with someone, it changes everything. When people know that you care, they want to hear what you have to say. So God desires for all men to be saved. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And I got to tell you, when I read this, after reading like, hey, the context of this is prayer and the purpose of prayer is for, uh, you know, this warfare that we're supposed to be waging to bring people to Christ. What does this have to do? The truth is, is it says there's one man and he's the mediator between you and God. Mediation there is, is the same word used for intercession. He is the intercessor between us and God. We pray and we have a prayer buddy. I don't know if you guys have ever had a prayer buddy on earth where it's like you call someone and say, hey man, I, I need you to pray for this because I'm really going through this. I'm really struggling. This week, I called a good friend of mine back in California, Dave Henchy, And I said, hey man, my you know my pastor, my father-in-law, he's got swollen legs, he's in Israel, he's not getting to... Experience the things that that he would like to, that I would like him to. Can you pray for him? And I have this this brother that I could contact him, and, and intercessory prayers done. This is saying that Jesus that saved you, that Jesus that died for you. He's our intercessor as well. He's our prayer buddy. He's our man on the inside. He's hanging out at the right hand of Jesus, or of God, praying for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, you don't have to turn there, just one verse, says, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. We got a prayer buddy sitting next to God, the father saying, no, 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 listen, this one's mine. Check this out. We need to do something for him. I don't know about you guys, but when I have a close friend and this is probably going to come off wrong, that's okay. But when I have a very, very close friend, someone who's like dear to my heart, when they call me and they're like, Hey, I need help. I'm like, you know. Boots on already, jumping, getting in the car, trying to get to them. If my wife calls me and says, hey, honey, the kids are sick. I know you're at work. I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. What do we do? What do What do you need me to do? Jesus is that to us, sitting at the right hand of the Father, talking to God for us. That should bring us comfort. That should be the most amazing thing that we hear all day, all month, all year. I mean, Jesus is talking to the Father for me. So when I'm going through it, when I'm struggling, when I'm going through those hard times, when I'm questioning something, when I'm struggling through parts of life, Jesus is sitting on the throne next to God, praying for me, talking to Him for me. I remember right after my car accident getting uh, out of Will's lazy boy chair just barely, uh, you know, could barely move trying to get to the kitchen to get a drink or food which my wife normally wouldn't let me do. But I remember thinking in my head, Lord, why? What's the purpose of this? Why am I going through this? Should I be in Maine? Should I be a pastor anymore? Honestly, I, I had these things running through my head. Why am I dealing with these things, Lord? The Lord answered all of those questions in my mind. He told me why. But the truth is, the whole time Jesus was sitting next to the Father, talking to the Father for me, speaking back to me. Amazing. Comforting. Continuing, verse six, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Jesus Christ is our mediator. And on top of that, he he died for all of us. Our mediator is also the one that ransomed us, gave his very life for us. Verse seven, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles and faith and truth. And I believe this ties right back to chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, which says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And now he's saying, I was made a preacher. And I'm one that's called to teach the Gentiles. How amazing. What an amazing transformation. And you may, you may be thinking today, hey, the Lord can do nothing with me. I've messed up way too much. I've done things that are unforgivable. I've done things in life that, no, that are unredeemable. The truth is, Paul the Apostle is saying, hey, check this out. I was a murderer of Christians. I am now a preacher of Christ Jesus. I am now an apostle to the Gentiles, a sent out one. God literally filled me with this Holy Spirit, sent me into the Gentile world, the the unbelieving, the, the disbelieving world of the Gentiles to bring them the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to to chew on that because the truth is there's nothing we've done that could disqualify us from simply serving Jesus Christ, from simply following Him. There's nothing. Our testimony, what happened in our past and what He's redeemed us from is beautiful in His eyes because you're a new creation in Christ. And whatever things that you've gone through, whatever things that you've done, He can use for the benefit of the kingdom. But you have to be submitted to Him. Otherwise, they're not. They're not going to be beautiful. If we're not submitted to Jesus Christ, if we're not those who are listening to His voice and doing what He says, we're continuing in our own testimony. Not in his. Jesus is clear that we need to be living in a lifestyle that that he's called us to. Paul's able to say this because he's literally given up everything. And you might be saying, James, I don't want to give up everything. The best thing about surrendering life to Christ Jesus, when you truly surrender, usually you're not giving up everything. You're gaining everything. Everything that you desired, everything that you were empty because of, yeah, it goes away. But all of the the things that you truly desire, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all of the amazing things in life are yours. You're filled with him. So he was appointed a preacher. And notice that. We talked about this last week. But he was appointed. It was God's judgment that made him the preacher, that made him the apostle. Continuing, verse 8. I desire therefore, and see we see that word therefore. And what is therefore therefore? Therefore is there because God desires all men to be saved. So this is what we need to be doing in regard to the idea that all men need to be saved. He moves to the church. You see, there he was directed to Timothy as the leader of the church. Now he moves to what he is asking for the church to be participating in. And it's amazing, as we go through this, it's exactly what he asked Timothy to be involved in. In verse 8 he says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. My first desire in regard to the salvation of of all humankind is that men and women, anthropos, pray everywhere. And then it says lifting up holy hands. And I heard this taught by several pastors that this is speaking of some uh, position of prayer. And don't get me wrong, prayer positions are awesome, especially for a guy like me, because I'm like a squirrel, I get distracted. I remember being in uh, Genesis class when I was at the Bible college. I had this teacher named Lou Wing. And um, what he would have us all do is he would have us all bow down and face our chair, which is kind of weird. But um, it took all distractions away. So we would sing worship with our faces towards our chair. And it wasn't some weird religious thing where we needed to take the worship position. But it was awesome because it took away distraction. But the truth of the matter here is that's not what what Paul is speaking about here. He's saying that all men should be lifting up holy hands, as in, we should be surrendering our bodies to Jesus Christ. Holy, undefiled hands need to be lifted to God. We need to be praying and we need to be living lives that are surrendered to Jesus Christ. Living in holiness Now, can we honestly say that about ourselves? That we're living lives in accordance to God's Word? That we have holy hands, so to say? That's a difficult one. Because most of us are probably doing things with our hands that are not good. Whether it's raising them in in, in fury putting things in them that don't belong. The truth is, is we're not surrendering our bodies to Christ Jesus. So he's asking the church to pray everywhere with lives surrendered to Christ. And then he says, without wrath and doubting. And the word doubting, you guys know what wrath is. It's the expression of anger. Anger is not a sin, by the way. To get angry at something is not bad. I'm angry that children are dying in abortion clinics. That's holy anger. That's acceptable. The Bible says to be angry and sin not. Okay? So we're allowed to be angry with things. But the bad thing is when wrath is created because of our anger. The expression of our anger. The word wrath is... Uh, you know, the outpouring of anger when you when you strike things, when you yell, when you—I mean, we all know what wrath looks like. But the word doubting there—it's—it's it's a word that means the thinking of a man deliberating with himself. You're coming to your own ideas, your own conclusions based upon your own thoughts. Scripture says, "Don't do that." Don't deliberate with yourself and try to come to conclusions because the truth is, your flesh is probably going to fail you. Your idea of logic is probably going to fall apart. What we need to be doing is deliberating with God. God, what does this mean? How do I go about this? What is this? What's the definition of this word? We need to not deliberate with ourselves. Doubt, so to say. Verse 9. In like manner. Also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety, moderation, not having braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly clothing. In like manner. What, wait, what? It didn't talk about the dress of man. It didn't talk about what he should be wearing or how, how he should be acting in this way. What in like matter? It's speaking of, again, waging the good warfare. How do we wage the good warfare? How do we continue to live a life that is one that's presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ appropriately to people? Men, be in prayer. Men, lift up holy hands. Live a lifestyle that is submitted to Jesus Christ men be without wrath and doubting women how do you do it well it's very simple says here women should adorn themselves okay understand that word adorn there is cosmetos you can almost speak it in english cosmetics scripture does not say do not wear cosmetics do not dress up it says do adorn yourself Okay, But how? That's the question. How are women to adorn themselves? Women adorn themselves in modest apparel. In modest apparel. The word modest there is the same word used for adorn. Kosmios. It's well-ordered. What it's saying is, is your apparel that you wear should not be something that is drawing attention to yourself. You should be dressing, and I would actually say to men, this is the same thing. You should be dressing in a way that you're well-ordered, but it's not. that's not what life is about. You know, I see young men, I, I get corrected for this, so I'm allowed to talk about it. I see young men wearing their pants underneath their butt, and their boxers are just hanging out all over the place. Truth be told, that's not what a Christian should be doing because it's drawing attention. And I tell you, I struggle with that because I grew up in an era where that's what you did. In the church, people are very uncomfortable with that. Shouldn't be drawing attention to yourself. So modest apparel. Continues by saying, with propriety. The idea is reverence. To be reverential in your living, And then it continues by saying, and moderation. And the word moderation there means sobriety of mind. And it's not the sobriety that you and I may think of, because we think of sobriety as without alcohol or without drugs. But the sobriety that it's speaking about there is the idea that you're supposed to uh, be mindful of oneself when approaching these subjects. And some may say, James, you're a chauvinist. You're telling women what they could wear and what they can't wear. How dare you? No, I'm not. I promise. I won't tell you. But God's Word will. God's Word will tell you what's appropriate. That we should be living lives that are drawing attention to Christ instead of ourselves. It's kind of funny. Yesterday I was driving into Walmart after a little event here right before uh, our youth study. I was driving into Walmart and I went to go get a parking spot and there's this woman and she wasn't dressed too inappropriate, but her heels were like that tall. No joke. I was like, whoa, I've never seen anything like I was I was like, she's got pillars on her feet. I was amazed. But what popped in their glass or plastic and their see-through. And what popped in my head is wow, that just drew my attention straight to her feet. I mean, that's all I could think about when I looked that way. This woman's got huge things under her feet. That is insane. All of my attention was drawn to that. You see, in the culture in in Ephesus where Timothy was, and in the Roman culture, it was all about your apparel. What was hot? What was new? They wore these big, fancy dresses, expensive. Spending all kinds of money on, on clothing. to to gain the approval of the upper class. Kind of sounds like America. Kind of sounds like what we experience. If you don't have the new Nikes or or whatever it may be, or maybe in your world it's not the new video game or the new controller or or whatever it is, the new car. We're trying to gain approval based upon these things. The truth is, Truth be known here, it's God saying to women in the church, that shouldn't be the definition of you. He continues by saying not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Again, it's not about the stuff. It's about the heart. What are you trying to accomplish by doing this stuff? What's the purpose in you wearing these clothes? Verse 10 but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And the word proper there, it's that which makes you stand out. That's what that word means. It's saying, what makes you stand out should not be these things. When I drove into the parking lot at Walmart, what stood out were these heels. Oh, holy moly. But what should make you stand out in the crowd? What what should make you stand out in the church? is your good works. Your confession of Jesus Christ, your lifestyle. People should be able to say, "No, that that person knows Jesus." It's not because they're loud and wild at church and they're flamboyant when they say the name Jesus. Jesus, you know, it's not it's not because of that. Their lifestyle just yells Jesus from the rooftops. that which is proper for a woman professing godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Again, super hard portion of scripture, right? No, it's actually not. Very simple. He continues by saying in verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence for Adam was formed first than Eve. So he's relaying this back to creation. And he's saying, look, this is the order that God has set. I want women to be silent in church, and I don't want them to teach. And you may be saying, James, that's messed up. Women can't talk at church. No, that's not what it's saying. The word silence there is not complete quietness. It's actually the same word used. Let me find it. It's the same word used for peacefulness or peaceable in verse two, chapter two, verse two, where it says, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. It's the same word, peaceable. Let the women be peaceable. Now, what does that look like? An agreement, not fighting, not contentious. In Corinth, we see Paul saying a similar thing. That women need to be in obedience to the the ruling authority of the church, the pastors. It's the same idea here. The idea is that not that women need to shut their mouths, stay quiet. The idea here is that you need to be peaceable. Why? It says here, because... Adam was formed first, then Eve. There's a orderliness to the church. There's a set structure to the church. Just like it says in 1 Corinthians, there's a set structure to the home. The husband is to rule the wife. Why? It's not because the husband's smarter. My wife is way smarter than me, comes up with way better decisions than me all of the time. And I rely on her. The fact of the matter is, the Lord has created orderliness in marriage. He's created orderliness in the church. And again, this all goes back to the fact that we're supposed to be waging the good warfare. Verse 14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, you have the creation, you have Adam being created, and then you have Eve. The orderliness is Adam runs the household. And then you have the fall of Adam and Eve, which happened when the woman was deceived. She ate of the fruit. Not because she did it willingly, but she was confused. Adam willingly ate of the fruit. But then it says, verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. And this right here, this is where the church goes all over the place and crazy with this verse. Well, women will be saved because they have babies. No! That's not what it's saying. Well, women's joy will come because they have children. That's not what it's saying either. The context of this is that Eve was deceived and ate of the fruit. And then it says, nevertheless, nevertheless, pointing to the verse before it, she will be saved in childbearing. The fact that the Messiah came through the fruit of the woman or the seed of the woman. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbirth if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So that's the, the real point that we need to be getting to. Are we continuing, both women and men, in faith? The, the word faith there is pistis. It's, it's uh, a general faith. Do we have faith in God? Is our life ruled by the fact that we believe God and we take Him at His word. The second is love, agape. I love unconditionally. I'm going to love people regardless of what they do to me, of the decision that they make, whether they desire to be near me or not, and holiness with self-control, living lives of reverence, living lives set towards Jesus Christ with self-control and control of what they do. That's that's where the salvation is found. What it comes down to, it's really easily explained. We need to be living lives pointed towards Jesus Christ. We see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29, it says, For all of you are sons of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's not a salvation separate for women and for men. Salvation is received the same way. It's through obedience to Christ. Through faith in what he's done for us. It's through his grace. And what we need to be doing as men and women is humbly surrendering our lives to him. Following after him. Allowing him to guide our every step. Amen? Let's pray. Spend some time in fellowship. You guys are welcome to stay as long as you'd like. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truths. We thank you that we have scripture to define things for us, to guide us, to tell us what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. Father, I ask that you do bless this time. Allow us to to ruminate on these things, to to think about them throughout our week. Allow them to change our hearts and our minds. Because I know so often I hear stuff like this and, And what happens inside of me is is instant contention. I want to argue against it. But Father, I ask that you allow these things to soften us, to be fully submitted to you, to your word. Father, I ask that you watch over the church, not the building, but the people. You bless them. Allow their week to be amazing, to be one where they're seeking you in all things. They're telling your truth to people. They're living out this life that you've called us to. Father, we do ask that you, again, watch out for our pastor. Pray for him. I, I, I ask that you intercede for him as you have been. And guide the doctors in Israel if they need to go back guide Lori and Will as they deal with the pressures that come with medical problems. Bless them, Father. Bless the rest of their trip, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.